one of the first school shootings to rock the nation occurred at Columbine High School near Denver, Colorado. Cassie Burnell was studying her Bible at lunch when she heard the shooting erupt. When the gunman entered her room, Cassie reportedly knelt and prayed, which only made him more angry. He approached her and asked her directly, Do you believe in God? She said, Yes. He then asked a second question, Why? Before she could answer, she was gunned down in cold blood. Who was Cassie and what was she like? Well, she had been a Christian for only two years. Just two years. She was a senior in high school, and she brought her Bible to school every day. She wore a bracelet that said, What would Jesus do? And three days before the shooting, she had skipped her prom so that she could help with a Denver-area Youth for Christ banquet. At her funeral, her pastor said, Cassie died a martyr's death. She went to the Martyrs Hall of Fame. The book that was written about her life is, She Said Yes. The subtitle of the book is, The Unlikely Martyrdom of Cassie Bernal. Now, we have to ask a simple question today. Why was a brand new Christian who carried a Bible to school every day, who prayed and did nice things for people, why was she murdered? The answer today is really very simple, but I think many times it's startling. Here is the answer as to why she was murdered. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an offense to the world. And it is such an offense to the world that it brings persecution and even death. This is the reason, plain and simple. Now this morning we are coming back to our study in our series in the Last Supper in the Gospel of John. And today, as we come to chapter 16, the Lord Jesus returns to teaching us about the work of the Holy Spirit. And in verses 1 to 15, there are two things that he does. He continues the theme of persecution by the world and why we need the Holy Spirit. And the first necessitates the second It is because the world persecutes the church and Christians that the powerful work of the Holy Spirit is demanded. Let's just take a moment together and ask the Lord to be our teacher again today. Father, we are thankful for the bright and shining example of people like Cassie who loved their life 
love not their life unto death. And really fulfilled the very meaning of the word witness, which is to give their lives as a martyr for you. Lord, help us to see today as we look at the work of the Spirit of God that Jesus so clearly wanted us to understand that apart from his ministry, there is no hope of convincing a lost world of their need of Jesus. But may we find encouragement today because the very spirit that Jesus promised lives in our hearts today and is amongst us to cause our message and our witness to change hearts and bring people to Jesus. We love you, Lord, today for that. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to John 16. And let's begin by noticing the world's reaction to Christians. You please follow along as I read verses 1 through 6. Listen to what Jesus said. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor have they known me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes... You may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you and all the opposition came to me, Jesus means. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks, where are you going? Because Jesus had already explained that. But because I have said these things about the world's opposition to you, Sorrow has filled your heart. Now, from the very earliest times until now, what Jesus said has occurred. Uh, You can't get very far in the book of Acts, chapter 4, and Peter and John are arrested. You get to Acts, chapter 7, and Stephen is stoned. You get to Acts chapter 12, and James is beheaded, and Peter is arrested and imprisoned a second time. And on and on throughout the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, there's hardly a chapter where there is not some form of opposition, persecution, sometimes death. And this has been the way it is and continues to be the way it is to our very day. I just finished reading a fascinating book about the Wesleyan revival that John Wesley and his circuit-riding preachers sparked in Great Britain. It's a marvelous story entitled, Wesley and Men Who Followed. And as they rode on their horses on the circuits preaching the gospel, they spread the gospel all throughout England and Wales and Scotland and Ireland. And many believe that because of their efforts in bringing the gospel to that nation, that England did not go through a bloody revolution like France did. But I want to read for you what some of those circuit-riding preachers experienced. A man by the name of Gideon Osley 
was the key man in bringing the gospel to Ireland. And listen to what he experienced. In 1830, he wrote to a friend that for several years, he had not lost any blood preaching in the open air, apart from a recent exception. When assailed by a shower of stones, turf, dirt, and eggs, he had been hit in the mouth, and this made me bleed a little. His biographer said the truth was two of his teeth had been knocked out, and he had to wipe the bleeding away as he kept preaching. Said his biographer, had some men been as often mobbed and stoned as him, they would have made a bigger deal over what they had gone through. You see, this is always the way it's been. From the day of Jesus to our present time, and Cassie Bernal is just one of the most recent examples that has continued from Jesus down to us. And so we have to ask a question. How do we reach a world that is so hostile to our message? Have you ever wondered the pathetic position of a pastor who stands behind a pulpit on a Sunday morning? The Apostle Paul said, Jews seek after signs, Gentiles seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles foolishness. Have you ever wondered about the pathetic position of a pastor who would get up and preach to an audience looking for signs and an audience looking for wisdom, not for a crucified Christ? Well, Jesus says the answer to that problem is the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And so starting in verse 7, he begins to talk to us about the threefold work of the Holy Spirit of God that is absolutely necessary for our work in the world. Do you know the famed preacher Charles Spurgeon, who had a megachurch before there was such a thing as a megachurch? As he would climb the stairs into his pulpit every Sunday, he would pray on every step, I need the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit. And it was only in confidence that the Spirit of God was present and was able to work that he knew his ministry could be successful. Now, what does Jesus tell us? Well, let me just give it to you very, very quickly here in summary form. Here's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts the world. He enlightens the believer. And he glorifies Christ. Now, Jesus gives it to us in this order. But in the way that the Spirit works, it is in reverse order. He glorifies Christ in the Word. He enlightens the mind of believers so that we can see the beauty of Christ in the Word. And then as we share that with the world, the Spirit of God convicts the world through our message and our testimony. We must understand the Holy Spirit has a methodology and a process. He is not some ghost out there just floating around, somehow convicting the world, but He works through a process. 
John Calvin said this, As soon as the Spirit is severed from Christ's Word, the door is open to all sorts of craziness and impostures. And we know that's true. When we sever the Holy Spirit from this process that actually works in reverse order, all of us know, leads to all kinds of craziness and impostures. The Spirit of God has a methodology. So let's start, shall we, with the last. And let's work our way from the bottom up to the top. The first thing that the Spirit of God does is He glorifies Christ. Look at verse 7. Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now drop down to verse 14. That Helper, that Holy Spirit, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said, He will take what is mine, and He will declare it to you. The word glorify here is a very important word. It means to lift up and explain Jesus by shining the spotlight on Christ. That's what the Spirit of God does. He lifts up and he explains Jesus by shining the spotlight on Christ. Now Christ is the center of the whole Bible. All the Bible points to him and the old is fulfilled in him and the old is explained in the new. And I want you to notice here that in this passage, Jesus is saying, there is a direct line from the Father, God, to our Bibles. You can see what Jesus is saying. All the truth that the Father has is mine. And Jesus said, I've declared it unto you. Now the Holy Spirit, what He will do is He will lift me up and He explain me. He will shine the spotlight on me and He will take what is mine and declare it to you. And Jesus says, this is so important how He works that at the end of verse 15, He says about the Holy Spirit uh, a second time, He will take what is mine and He will declare it to you. Now follow this. Jesus got His teaching from the Father. And the Spirit got His teaching from the Son. So just as the Son expounded and glorified the Father, so the Spirit expounds and glorifies the Son. So that every time we open our Bibles and we begin to study, the Holy Spirit magnifies Christ to us so that we then can witness to the world. You remember last week I shared this little diagram with you that we use in our everyday evangelism ministry, that evangelism is a three-way conversation. We are the witnesses as believers, and we are witnessing to a world that says your message is foolish, and there are not enough signs that we can see that accompany it. 
And our task is to make Jesus look beautiful to the world, but how can a crucified Jew who said he was God would rise again and had the audacity to say that he would come back and he would be the Savior of the whole world? How can that message be beautiful to a world that says that is foolish? And so what has to happen is the Holy Spirit has to come live within us as he does and then work in us And only He can make the Lord Jesus Christ beautiful. And He does that by magnifying Christ when we hold forth the Word so that people can come to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the first step in His methodology of reaching this world. Let's look at the second one. Secondly, Jesus said that he enlightens the believer. Look back at verses 12 and 13. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, the things to come are reference to the rest of the revelation that is now found in our Bibles. So our Bibles now have been completed. And what Jesus is telling us is now that we have the complete revelation of the Lord, 66 books of the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, we can understand it because the Holy Spirit will guide us as we study. What is very interesting about this word guide in verse 13, he will guide you. It's the very same word, uh, root word, that Jesus used in John 14, 6 when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When Jesus says, I'm the way, What he means by that is, as the way, he is the guide to the Father. And he guides us to the Father by giving us the truth that he is, and then giving us the life that connects us to the Father. Now in the same way, says the Lord, the Holy Spirit will guide our understanding of that truth that he has revealed. Do you know this is the third time now? Starting in chapter 14, chapter 15, and now chapter 16, that Jesus is explaining how the message of God comes to us. By the way, what a wonderful teacher Jesus is. In verse 14, he gives us a little truth about uh, the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 15, chapter 15, he adds a little bit more to it. And then he gets here to chapter 16 and and he adds a little bit more to it so that by the time we get now here, he has taught about the Holy Spirit five different times. And he understands that repetition is the mother of learning and he understands that it is piece by piece, bit by bit, adding a little more here and there that we learn. And so three times now he has told us that God revealed his message to the prophets and apostles. The Holy Spirit then guided them to write that message down into the Word of God. 
And then he illumines or enlightens the minds of believers so that we can understand the message. And now as we get here to chapter 16, and he says, he will guide you into all the truth, he moves from revelation and inspiration and broadens it out a little bit more to illumination. I love what this word guide means. It means leadership toward a person who is interested in traveling the right path, but knows that he or she needs help in finding it. And isn't that what we are as believers? As we've come to believe in Christ, we are people who are interested in traveling the right path. But we understand we need help in order to find that right path. And now the Lord says, I have sent the Spirit who has brought the revelation, inspired it into the Word, and now remains to enlighten our minds. By the way, I love here so much that Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Truth, verse 13. That tells me the Bible is trustworthy. Sometimes we use the word truth for trustworthy or reliable. I might say about a certain person, you know, he's a, he's a person of truth. And what I mean is, he's trustworthy. You can rely upon him. So when Jesus says, the Spirit of truth is the one who has given this process and guides us today, what he now means is, he's reliable. You can trust him. This is the message that God wants us to have. When I was uh, living in Texas, going to school, I worked at an exclusive private girls' high school in North Dallas. It was called Hockaday School for Girls. It was a boarding school, and it was a very exclusive school, and I was there to be a chauffeur. That's the only way I would get into a school like that, is being a chauffeur. It was all these rich kids, you know, sent into this boarding school, these rich teenage girls, and so here I was driving them around to the Galleria Mall and, and the Valley View Mall, and, and I would feel so concerned for their souls because so many of them were just secular to the core and lost, and sometimes I would witness. I'll never forget one Friday night, I'm driving the van, and, and uh, I'm in a conversation with a girl who's about 16, and we got into spiritual things, and, and as we were talking about spiritual things, I mentioned the Bible she said to me, everybody knows the Bible was written by a bunch of men. With all the wisdom of a 16-year-old. <laughs> she had it all figured out. The Bible was written by a bunch of men. Well, let me ask you, how do you overcome that? How do you overcome that? Well, I want to tell you how. One day, God led the Apostle Paul to the Greek city of Philippi. 
He went out near a river where some people were gathered to pray. He began to share the gospel with them. There was a woman in that group. Her name was Lydia. She was a wealthy seller of purple dye. The Bible says the Lord opened her mind to receive the things that Paul was preaching. And because the Lord opened her mind by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lydia became a Christian. Then Paul shared the message with her family. Her family became Christians. And the church in Philippi began in her home And guess what book we were studying today in our adult Bible fellowship? The letter to the Philippians. Can you believe that? Can you in your wildest imagination believe that? That is the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Look thirdly in this process. Thirdly, he convicts the world. He convicts the world. Go back to verse 8 and now notice. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now the word convict here was a word that was used of a cross-examination in a legal trial. That's very critical because the word for helper in verse 7 referred to a defense lawyer or a prosecutor. So here's the wonderful image. As we take the word of God as believers and we share it with people, we are the witnesses. So we're sitting here on the witness stand. Here is the jury. And we are telling what we know. But we know the jury is inclined to vote against our message. And so the powerful Holy Spirit comes along as the prosecutor and he convinces the jury that this is true. He convicts them of the message of the gospel. Very interesting, the word convict here means showing someone his or her sin with a view to securing repentance. That's what he does. Now, I want you to notice, in order for this to happen, the Holy Spirit has to convict the world in three areas. Let's look at them for just a moment, shall we? First of all, he convicts the world that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Look at verse 9. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Do you know the worst sin anybody can be guilty of is the sin of not believing in Jesus as their Savior? All sins can be forgiven. But the one sin that prevents sin from being forgiven is the refusal to believe. Uh, One day Jesus was debating with the Jews. He said, unless you believe that I am He you will die in your sins. Uh, One day he was talking to Nicodemus, the great teacher of the Jews, the member of the Sanhedrin, the man who knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And he said, Nicodemus, 
He said, he who believes is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. On the day that Peter was imprisoned for the very first time in in Acts 4, why was he imprisoned? Because he said this, Neither is there salvation in any other name, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. When Randy Gilbertson and I go to the prison, The men there are guilty of many terrible sins. When Greg Van Hardesvelt trained us to go into the prison, he said to us, this is a very bad neighborhood. A very bad neighborhood. But here's what I know. If the prisoners will believe... Every sin they've ever committed will be forgiven and cleansed. But if they will not believe, even the smallest sin will not be forgiven. My old professor Ken Gangle said this, Unbelief closes the door to heaven. But this is the one thing the world does not want to believe. They don't want to believe that Jesus is the only way. You know, I knew a man who said he did not want to come to a funeral service in a church because he said, I don't want to go to that church and hear that Jesus is the only way. Now talk about hardness of heart. Here's somebody that died. You know that person. You know you ought to go and console and comfort their family. But you will not go to a service, uh, a funeral service in a church, because you know that if it's a church like Bethel, graciously you will hear that Jesus is the only way, and your heart is so hard, you don't want to hear that message, so you will not even come in here to a funeral service. How do you reach somebody like that? You need the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of our self-righteousness that it is unacceptable to God. Look with me at verse 9. He will convict the world concerning righteousness, verse 10, Because I go to the Father, and you see me no more. When Jesus died and rose again and ascended to the Father, what he revealed was his atonement alone was acceptable to God. He revealed that his righteous life alone was what God accepted, that our righteousness is unacceptable to God. And he showed that what we need is for God to apply a perfect righteousness to us so that we can have a righteous standing. The Bible calls that justification by faith. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the only way anyone can have peace with God. 
But here's what the world says. I'm not that bad. My goodness is much better than others. And therefore, I can make it on my own. Let me share with you a a, a verse that is astounding to the world. It says what God thinks about our goodness. I share it with you from the New Living Translation, Isaiah 64, 6. Would you read these astounding words to us? That apart from the Holy Spirit, we would be offended by this. Would you read them with me? We are all infected and impure with sin. When we proudly display our righteous deeds, we find they are but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins, like the wind, sweep us away. No wonder somebody has said this. On my best day, I'm just a sinner in need of a Savior. Now, why is that true? It's because even our good deeds come from a polluted heart. They are tainted by the evil that exists within us. If I were to say to you, why did the Flint water system have lead in it? You'd say, Pastor Brian, you know. The water went through old pipes that had lead in them. And the lead in the pipes polluted the water, making it poisonous. Now in the same way, our good deeds before a holy God come from a life polluted by unrighteousness. So that no matter how good they look to those around us, to God they are tainted by the pollution of sin. I read another statement this week that is astounding to the world, but every believer knows it's true. Listen to this statement. On my best day, I need God just as desperately as I do on my worst day. Think about that. On the day that I think I finally got it all together. By the way, you know what the problem is when you, you know what the problem is when you finally get it all together? You can't lift it. That's the problem. <laughs> but imagine your best day when you say, "Man, this was a good day. I got it all together today. I was as close to perfection as I've ever been." On that day, You need God just as desperately as you do on your worst day. Only the Holy Spirit can convict proud, self-righteous people of that. Notice the last thing he convicts us of. Convicts us that we are under judgment without Jesus. Look at verse 11. 
When he comes, he will convict the world concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged. Do you know this is one of the most wonderful verses in all the Bible? It tells us that Satan has already been judged. Do you know Satan had two weapons that were taken away at the cross? He had the weapon of sin by which he condemns us. And he had the weapon of death by which he condemns us eternally. When Jesus died on the cross, he made forgiveness possible, taking away the weapon of sin. When he rose again from the dead and ascended to the Father, he overcame death, taking away the weapon of eternal death. You know what the good news of the Bible is? Satan's weapons have been taken away. He is a defeated foe. We as believers are delivered from the law of sin and death. But do you know what is the most wonderful news? Is also one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Because unless we repent, we will be judged along with Satan. It is so hard for people to believe they are already on Satan's side. That is so hard to believe. You know, go down to the hockey arena someday when you've got a crowd of four or 5,000 there. Go out at halftime and, and get a microphone and stand before that group of people and say to them, Did you know you're already on Satan's side? And they'll say, who let you out? (laughs) Do you know one day Jesus was debating with the Jews? They said to him, we have God as our father. He looked them square in the eye and he said, your father... You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth, for he has never stood in the truth. It's an amazing thing for us to come to a verse like this and recognize for us to be judged, we don't have to do anything. All we have to do is continue on the way that we are and we will be judged in the lake of fire with Satan. What an incredible thing. Don't do anything. Just keep on the way that we are and we will be judged in the lake of fire with Satan. In the early service, a man came to me and said, Pastor, I was with you. I turned to Revelation. And I saw how the books were open. Those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life were cast into the lake of fire that was created for the devil and his angels. How do you convince a world that they are already under judgment? Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Bible teacher Merrill Tenney said this, A court can convict a man of murder, 
But only the Holy Spirit can convict the same man of unbelief, self-righteousness, and judgment to come. We can go down to the courthouse. We can stand there and watch a jury convict a man of murder. But the very same man can only be convicted of unbelief, self-righteousness, and judgment to come by the powerful Holy Spirit. In my library is a book written by a pastor that I've heard preach. His name is Michael Kokoris. One day he was conducting a rap session with a group of high school teenagers. And he said to them, uh, let's open it up for a question and answer. There was a girl there who turned out to be a senior, and she raised her hand. She said, uh, the Bible says that God loves everybody, but it also says that God sends people to hell. How can a loving God do that? Pastor Kokoris gave her an answer. She responded with an argument. He answered her argument. She answered his answers. And the whole thing quickly became an argument. She didn't convince him. He didn't convince her. So he just dropped it. There were a few more questions that were asked, and then he closed the session. As soon as it was over, he went to that high school girl, and he said to her, I want to apologize to you. He said, I should not have allowed our conversation to become an argument. Can you imagine that? She probably never had a pastor ever apologize to her in her life. And she was stunned by that. He said, would you mind if I shared something with you? And she said, yes. He opened his Bible and began to share the simple plan of salvation. When he got to Romans 3.23 and read, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, she began to cry. Then the truth came out. As an 18-year-old senior in high school, she was having an affair with a married man. And the one thing she needed was forgiveness. Pastor Kokoris went on and shared the rest of the gospel with her. And she trusted Christ as her Savior. And this is what Pastor Kokoris said. The reason she did not believe in hell was because she was going there. In her heart, she knew she had sinned. Her conscience condemned her. But rather than face the fact of her guilt, she simply denied any future judgment or future hell. When the message 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ and forgiveness of sin was pressed home to her heart by the Holy Spirit. The scales fell off of her eyes. The heart of stone that said, I don't believe, turned into a heart of flesh. And she became a believer in Christ. That's the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And it's why we're here today. It's why I'm behind this pulpit. It's why this church has been serving God for well over a hundred years. And it's why people will come to Jesus and find Him as Lord and Savior. Let's bow our hearts together. As our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed, do you remember the wonderful day in which your eyes were opened, your heart was softened, and you believed on Christ? I was a squirrely teenager raised in church not paying attention to the things that I was hearing. All of a sudden, one day, my attention was arrested. I began to think soberly about what my pastor was saying. I sought the Savior with tears. I desperately wanted to be saved. My life was so changed and transformed that I have never been the same. And it was exactly because of what Jesus is talking about here. If you don't know for sure that this has happened to you, you need to make sure. As we are bowed in silence and our eyes are closed, we can say something like this to the Lord privately. Lord Jesus, I'm lost and undone. I confess I've been proud and self-righteous. But I understand now that as I stand before a holy God, my goodness is tainted through and through with sin. Lord Jesus, we can say, I... I need you. You are the perfect Son of God. You went to the cross and died for my sins. You said it was finished, paid for them for me. You rose again and conquered death, and Satan now is a defeated foe.
Lord Jesus, you can say, I believe in you. Come into my heart and be my Savior. Come into my life and be my Lord. Forgive me of all my ugly sins. Give to me the life that you said you came to give. And make me this day a child of God. Lord Jesus, you can say I'm repenting. I'm turning from my own self-centered way and I'm turning to you. From this day forward, with your Spirit living now in me, I will follow you. Thank you for saving me. Blessed Holy Spirit, take these words that often seem so empty and drive them powerfully home to human hearts. And may this day souls desperately needing salvation be brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. See Him as the beautiful, crucified Savior who died and rose, ascended, is coming again. May He be seen today in all His glory and wonder. And may souls be saved for His great sake. Thank you for the privilege today of being a part of the ministry of this church and making this glorious message known until Jesus comes and takes us home. How we love you and thank you, Lord, today. For the name of our blessed Savior. Amen.